Good morning. For today, it could be one of the costliest natural disasters in Canada's history. Tropical storm Fiona hit the country's east coast over the weekend, leaving a trail of destruction in its wake. And residents in Florida are buckling down for a possible hurricane that could make landfall later this week. Police officers in New York battling the vaccine mandate score a win, refusing the jab cost some their jobs. Find out why a judge ruled the mandate invalid. More protests in cities worldwide as an increasing number of Iranians condemned the death of a young woman at the hands of Iran's morality police. What this could mean for the future of Iran's regime. And elections in Italy, the first female prime minister in history, is forecast to take the helm as conservatives sweep into power. Happy, mon happy Monday, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee, still by myself, as you can see, but Kevin will be back tomorrow. But in the meantime, we're starting today's program with Eastern Canada. A natural disaster there, powerful storm Fiona hit the country's east coast Saturday. Hurricane force winds and torrential rain forced evacuations, knocked out power and destroyed homes. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the devastation and response. The Canadian Hurricane Centre says it may be the lowest pressure storm to hit land in the country's history. It's the most surreal experience of my life. Never seen anything like it. The hurricane was downgraded to a tropical storm Friday. Residents in Porto Basque, Newfoundland, described the storm as pure chaos. Winds reached up to 106 miles per hour. Yeah, we watched a house over here just completely get ripped off its foundation by a wave. And there was actually a house behind me right where we're standing and that's completely gone now and we watched that one just disappear. Police say one 73-year-old woman from Porto Basque died during the storm, tragically swept out to sea. Over 20 homes in the small town were destroyed. More than 200 people were left needing shelter. Hundreds of thousands of residents across Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland, Quebec and New Brunswick were left without power. This is not an effort that's going to happen in a day. This is an effort that's not going to happen in weeks. This could be months. Despite the trail of destruction left in its wake, no serious injuries or deaths were reported in Nova Scotia. Officials say that's a result of residents heeding repeated warnings. The damage is uh, it's pretty heartbreaking, uh, but uh, you know, what I, what I would say is it's a testament to, to Nova Scotians and their preparedness. Debris, toppled trees and power lines, and washed out roads were a common sight in many communities. Damage assessment and cleanup efforts are now underway. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the armed forces will be deployed to help and that the government has approved federal assistance for Nova Scotia. Around 100 troops are heading to Prince Edward Island after the province requested federal support. Officials say in some cases it would take weeks before essential services are fully restored. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And another storm is coming. Officials in Florida urged residents of vulnerable coastal regions to prepare for Tropical Storm Ian, which was upgraded to a Category 1 hurricane this morning. Ian is going to be a large and powerful hurricane in the eastern Gulf of Mexico and spread its impacts over a large portion of the Florida peninsula. It's important to point out to folks that the path of this is still 
uncertain. The impacts will be broad throughout the state of Florida. Make preparations now and also anticipate that in certain areas of the state, if you are in a very vulnerable area, there, there may even be evacuations uh, uh, that, that are issued. Ron DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis declared a state of emergency for all of Florida this weekend, which is an upgrade from Friday's declaration covering 24 counties. Meanwhile, many residents and local businesses began making their own preparations. They were stocking up on food and water and protecting their homes. Tropical Storm Ian was barreling toward western Cuba as of yesterday. Forecasters expect it to soak the Caribbean island with heavy rainfall and trigger storm surges. The storm could begin hitting southern Florida today in the evening or tomorrow morning. And New York police officers scored a big win in their fight against the city's COVID vaccine mandate on Friday. A New York Supreme Court judge has ruled the mandate invalid. The judge ordered to the reinstatement of all those who were fired or put on leave for not complying with the mandate. He says the Department of Health and the mayor cannot create a condition of employment without collective bargaining. The judge cited the city's dealings with other unions as a precedent. The city plans to appeal the ruling. That would free the court's decision until the appeal is heard. The ruling comes just days after Mayor Eric Adams said he was lifting the city's vaccine mandate for the private business sector on November 1st. And a major update from Arizona. The state will no longer allow abortions. The only exemption will be in cases where the mother's life is at risk. The ruling came down from an Arizona Superior Court judge on Friday. A previous injunction barred the enforcement of Arizona's abortion ban. The ban was put in place in 1902. The state's attorney general requested the injunction to be lifted. The judge says there is no legal basis for the injunction now that Roe v. Wade has been overruled. Arizona's attorney general praised the ruling. He says it provides clarity and uniformity on the issue. The ruling takes effect immediately. Clinics statewide will have to stop providing the procedure to avoid criminal charges against doctors and other medical workers. Anyone convicted could face two to five years in prison. Planned Parenthood and two other large providers say they're halting abortions. And in other news, clashes between protesters and police broke out in several countries over the weekend. Demonstrators condemned the death of a young woman at the hands of Iran's so-called morality police. Protesters are calling to overthrow Iran's regime. Here's Kostamines with more. Protesters gathered in the hundreds outside the Iranian embassy in London on Sunday. The demonstrations were triggered by the death of a young woman, Masa Amini, while detained by Iran's so-called morality police. British police jostled with demonstrators as they blocked the road to the embassy, which appeared to earlier have had red paint thrown at it. Officers detained at least one protester. Meanwhile, protests over Masa Amini's death have spread across nearly 50 cities, towns and villages in Iran. Iranian state TV has suggested that at least 41 protesters and police have been killed since the protests began on September 17th. Protesters tore down posters of the supreme leader of the Iranian regime, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, and late leader Ayatollah Khomeini, shouting death to the dictator. Iranians around the world are angry at the regime.
Iranians living in Greece cut their hair and set fire to a headscarf on Saturday during a demonstration. I don't want to follow this terrorist and dictator regime and I'm here to support my people because they don't have voice. Demonstrations also ensued in front of the White House on Saturday. The protest was orchestrated by the Organization of Iranian American Communities, or OIAC. The OIAC calls for the overthrow of Iran's clerical leaders and fought alongside Saddam's forces in the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. And it is a test of the international community to stand with the people of Iran. Our message to the White House is to stand with the people of Iran, reject the Iranian regime and recognize the Iranian people's rights to overthrow this regime. Further protests happened in Canada on Saturday, where members of Canada's Iranian community urged the Canadian PM to refuse to engage with Iran's leaders. Kost MNS, NTD News. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk said on Twitter Friday that he is activating Starlink. It was in response to a tweet from Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He says the U.S. is taking action to advance Internet freedom for the Iranian people. And Starlink is a satellite system that could provide that Internet access with a small satellite receiver. Over in Italy, Italy is set to have the, its first female prime minister, Conservative Georgia Meloni. Early results indicate that her brothers of Italy topped the polls with 26% of the vote in yesterday's election. Here's entities Daniel Monaghan. The victory by the brothers of Italy has propelled an alliance of conservative parties to clear majorities in both houses of parliament. They won just over 4% at the last general election in 2018. Maloney will almost certainly get the nod from the head of state to form a new government as the leader of the largest single party. She will face a daunting array of problems including surging energy prices and the war in Ukraine. In a victory speech, Maloney said, When this night is over, we have to remember, we must remember that we are not at the end point, we are at the starting point. It is from tomorrow that we must prove our worth. The rapid rise in her fortunes is intricately tied to the transformation of Brothers of Italy. It has quickly moved out of the background and into the mainstream. Friends and critics alike say the surge in support is largely due to the steely determination of Maloney. She won her first local election at 21 and became Italy's youngest ever minister at the age of 31. Maloney compares her party to the U.S. Republican Party and Britain's Conservative Party. Patriotism and traditional family values are exalted while woke political correctness and global elites are denounced. She has expressed her fondness for natural families and is critical of the LGBT lobby and gender ideology. She has also expressed her disdain for the violence of Islam. She supports safer borders and strives to put a stop to mass immigration. Her ascent is especially notable considering her humble background. She was brought up by a single mother in a working-class district of the Italian capital. Her father abandoned them after her birth. Her tough style of speaking draws comparisons in the Italian press to former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Some critics have called the party far-right. Daniel Monaghan, NTD News. Japan will hold a state funeral for former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe on Tuesday, tomorrow. Preparations were underway today around the Nippon Budokan Arena in central Tokyo. Police officers were on patrol as construction workers assembled stages outside the venue, 
6,000 guests and 190 foreign delegations are expected to attend. Abe's assassination in July touched off a series of revelations about ties between lawmakers and the ruling Liberal Democratic Party he once led and the Unification Church, an organization critics call a cult. Abe was not a member of the church. Vice President Kamala Harris arrived in Tokyo on Monday for the funeral on a three-day tour in Japan and South Korea. She will discuss a partnership on Taiwan security issues with Japan's Prime Minister Kishida. And coming up, thousands of home buyers in China are living in unfinished buildings. The apartments with no utilities are being called rotten tail buildings. And North Korea fires a ballistic missile off its east coast just ahead of joint U.S. and South Korean military drills. Find out what Japan and South Korea have to say in response after the break. Next, we have some Asian news. Looking at China first, thousands of home buyers there are suffering from the country's deep real estate slump, living in unfinished structures known as the rotten tail buildings. They usually have no electricity, no running water, elevators that do not work, and sometimes no sewage system. Entity's Costa Maness has the story. For the last six months, home for Ms. Xu has been a room with only a mosquito net-covered bed, some necessities and empty bottles strewn across the floor. She lives in a high-rise apartment that she bought around three years ago in the southwestern Chinese city of Guilin. Originally attracted to the property by brochures that spoke of its waterfront views and the city's clean air. Now, however, her living conditions are far from those promises. Unpainted walls, holes where electric sockets should be, and no gas or running water. Every day, she climbs up and down several flights of stairs, carrying heavy water bottles filled with a hose outside. Since there is no hot water, no water and no electricity, we wait until after water from the hose has warmed up by the sun, then we wash our hair. Xu bought her two-bedroom apartment in early 2019 for around $60,000, just about a year after its developer started construction. In June 2020, the same real estate hit the headlines after a court accused its parent company of illegal fundraising. It seized $48 million worth of its properties, including a number of flats where Xu lives. She found out a month after the construction stopped describing her feelings at the time as crashing from paradise. All the family's efforts were invested in this house, but I didn't expect the building to be rotten. She said her son and her husband, who live far away in the northern province of Hebei, blame her for their financial predicament and no longer speak to her. She has nowhere to go but her unfinished apartment and hopes the Guilin government will step in to help her predicament. Xu and about 20 other buyers living in the Xiulian County complex now share a makeshift outdoor toilet and gather during the day at a table and benches in the central courtyard area. They are part of a movement of home buyers around China who have moved into what they call rotting apartments. Some with hope to pressure developers and authorities to complete them, some out of financial necessity. Since the debt crisis erupted in 2021, thousands more home buyers have been caught in similar predicaments as cash trap developers went into bankruptcy or abandoned struggling projects. In late June, 
thousands of home buyers in at least 100 cities threatened to hold mortgage payments to protest stalled construction. Pre-sales have become standard practice in China. In 2021, 87% of new homes in the country were sold while still under construction. A 90-year-old Catholic cardinal and five others stood trial in Hong Kong on Monday. They are being charged for failing to register a humanitarian relief fund. It was set up to pay medical and legal fees for those arrested in the 2019 protests. Cardinal Joseph Zen is a retired bishop of Hong Kong. He was first arrested in May with other trustees of the now-defunct fund, including singer-actress Denise Ho. They were arrested on suspicion of colluding with foreign forces to endanger China's national security. Colluding with foreign forces is a common allegation by the Chinese regime, which now controls Hong Kong. The accused have not yet been charged with any national security-related charges. The case will mainly center around whether the fund is considered an organization that is required to register and when the fund was established. All have pleaded not guilty. If convicted, they face a fine of around $1,200 with no jail time. Cardinal Zen is a longtime supporter of human rights in Hong Kong. Tokyo and Seoul have denounced Pyongyang for threatening peace in the region. North Korea had fired a ballistic missile off its east coast early on Sunday. The launch came just ahead of joint U.S.-South Korean military drills and a visit to the region by Vice President Kamala Harris. Here's the story. South Korea's military said it was a single, short-range ballistic missile fired from near the Taechon area of North Pyongan province just before 7 a.m. local time. Seoul called the launch an act of grave provocation and held an emergency National Security Council meeting to discuss response measures. Japan's defense minister Yasukazu Hamada told reporters, including cruise missiles, this was the North's 19th launch this year. He said Pyongyang's missile testing is taking place at an unprecedented pace, adding, quote, to do this as the Ukraine invasion unfolds is unforgivable. The last time North Korea carried out such a launch was in early June, when it fired eight short-range ballistic missiles in one day. South Korea's Yonhap News Agency reported on Saturday that the North may also be preparing to test a submarine-launched ballistic missile, citing the South's military. And South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol called media reports on a hot mic incident untrue today. This after he was caught cursing following a brief chat with President Biden in New York last week. His press secretary dismissed the allegations, saying Yoon was referring to the South Korean parliament without mentioning Biden. Yoon says such reports that are, in his words, different from the facts, would threaten to damage relations with the United States, and that the South, that the South Korea and U.S. alliance is essential. After al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Sawahiri was killed in a U.S. drone strike, a photo was released of President Biden and CIA Director William Burns with a wooden box. The content of the box is now on display at the CIA Museum. Entities Flinders Kingsley tells us more. The museum has added a model of al-Zawahari's safe house where he was living at the time of his death. The model was used to brief President Biden about the leader's whereabouts before the drone strike was ordered. 
The addition is significant because items in the CIA museum traditionally take decades to declassify, while the model was used by intelligence officers just weeks prior. The CIA museum, located at the Virginia headquarters, is not open to the public and is reserved for employees and guests. However, the museum allowed access to journalists leading up to its 75th anniversary. The agency is using the museum to engage its history with the public, inviting lawmakers, officers and foreign officials, among others. Although the number of guests allowed access to this museum is, as you might expect, classified. The model of al-Zawahari's home depicts a five-story house with three partially covered balconies. Seven stars are hung by the display to commemorate the seven lost in a suicide attack during investigations to find the al-Qaeda leader. Flinders Kingsley, NTD News. And next, we have French people jumping off mountains in the French Alps. But that's hardly the craziest thing happening in the Flying Carnival. And paragliders in costumes braved running off the edge of a cliff to take to the skies above the French Alps on Saturday. Around 100 participants from France and beyond took part in the annual flying carnival. And Denise Flinders Kingsley has the story. The daring pilots took off at the French Alps to launch the high-flying event. But don't be fooled, these aren't celebrities. They're cleverly dressed competitors gunning for the best costume category. These two individuals masquerade as Maverick and Goose from the Top Gun franchise. Okay, well, as we released a new film this year, 20 years later, right, we thought with Maverick that we would fly again the old F-14. So we took it out, we dusted it off, we changed the head gasket, we brought it up to date. Some paragliders wanted a leisurely game of billiards on the ride down. Some wanted to express their appreciation for extraterrestrials. Paragliding usually has its dangers, not to mention the addition of costumes. You always have an adrenaline rush when you take off, but after that it's super fun. It's pure happiness. People cheer and clap and we share our happiness with them. The weather conditions weren't perfect for flying. Luckily the crowd got a performance from the Angry Birds, and this man showed the Queen is still in our hearts. In the end, the weather cleared up and the audience got a two-for-one deal. The costumes were beautiful this year. There were around 100 pilots in costumes. The Flying Carnival began in the 1970s. In 1987, the costumes competition was added. This year, it's estimated around 90,000 people attended the event throughout the week. Flinders Kingsley, NTD News. Some top-notch content right there. And with apple picking season underway, it's no surprise that today we celebrate the men we owe our apple trees to. It's National Johnny Appleseed Day. Today, September 26th, marks his birthday, and he's a man credited with planting apple trees across America. His real name was John Chapman, born in Massachusetts back in 1774. From there, he moved on to plant apple seeds in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, and Indiana. Eventually, he started orchards in Illinois, Iowa, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Many cities across those states honor Johnny Appleseed with parks or monuments. 
I just may have an apple for lunch later in celebration. But that's it for today's program. But before we go, we'd love to hear from you. You can share your thoughts and your story at goodmorning@ntd.com. So shoot us an email if you'd like. Have a great day. I'm Evelyn Lee.